Hey everyone, welcome back. Client relationships, huge topic, and I know there's been a lot of stuff written, a lot of stuff said about that. You know, I'm a firm believer, the most important thing about client relationships and building strong relationships is just finding out what works for you and then taking that and evolving it, you know, learning from other people, getting different perspectives. So start with that core thing you've got and then add to it from all of the people around you. So today we are going to be talking to someone that I absolutely know has great wisdom to add to this conversation. His name's James and he's got a really, really cool story. So we're going to hop into it. One thing that I'd ask is in this conversation, start with what do I know that I do and then contrast that against what James shares with us. So welcome yet again to One Step Beyond. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today we are here with James Taptinos, who is the VP of Global Sales at Jam USA. James, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Okay, so tell us a bit about yourself. You know, we'd love to hear, you know, where you grew up, what you were into when you were uh, when you were a kid, and also a bit about your job. You know, what does it actually entail? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in a, a great ethnic Greek Italian family. I had a lot of great multi-generational um, influence and and incredible food, as you can imagine. Uh, loving household. I really, I was, I was super blessed. And my parents were extremely supportive. I was a, uh, I started skateboarding, which certainly led me into music uh, through, through old skate videos and, and such and, and, and friends. So that's kind of how I fell into the music world. Um at an early age, I was uh, a drummer at like 12, started playing guitar around 18, which then led me into not just being in bands, but being a guitar tech, being a tour manager. We can get into that later if you, if you guys enjoy long-winded stories. <laughs> um, and eventually that led to my getting into music retail, which was never really in the cards, but... Uh, that was the the launch pad, which you know, 22 years later, brought me to become VP of Sales for Jam USA, mm -hmm. and uh, we manufacture and distribute musical instruments all over the world. So we do everything from nose flutes, which mm -hmm. many people don't even know what they are, um, all the way up to uh, Marshall stacks and everything in between. So uh, it's, it's actually a pretty fun business because I could still stay pretty connected to my music roots mm -hmm. and do something I love. But um, being, you know, r running a sales organization is certainly a, a skill set and, uh, and, a, and a very professional environment. Yeah. But uh, I'm doing it in an industry that I love, which is mm -hmm. super important. If, you, if you're not, not doing what you love, um, you have to reevaluate because life's too short. Yeah, yeah. So I got to ask before we go any further, what is a nose flute? <laughs> it literally is something you put in your nose and you blow through your nose and it makes like whistle and flute noises. Is this like, is there a market for this thing? 
You'd be shocked. There's a market <laughs> for so many things you didn't know existed. Wow, man. Well, you know, I've already learned something on our on our uh, our talk today. That's great. Okay, Google uh, it. Google and it. So I have so much stuff I'm interested in here. Um, so I know we're going to focus sure. a lot on relationship building and specifically how it pertains to your your career, your industry, and how you really took the values that you learn in the punk and hardcore scene into that world. Um, sure. As a starting place, though, if you think about relationships, something that's standing out to me right off the bat is when you're talking about you've got this rich history from your family where it's like multi-generational and you have all of this like learning and history passed down and a real sense of like community and, and family. Mm -hmm. Do you think that started you on this path? I never really thought about it, but I, yeah, I, I would say so. You can't be... A, a type B personality in in a in either an Italian or a Greek family. It's just it's all A <laughs> and it's as loud as it gets. Um, I had on my, on my Italian side of the family, I have fifteen first cousins, and we all grew up like brothers and sisters wow. because we all grew up within five blocks of each other in Brooklyn. So. Um, from a young age, you learn relationships, you learn how to interact with people, you learn how to find commonality. Um, and in turn, when you're out on your own and you're skateboarding and you see these other skateboarders you never met in your life and you walk up and you go, hey, my name is mm. right. Not not everybody has that in them. Mm. Um, some people would just tend to be on their own. So, yeah, I think that probably did have a bit to do with my my outgoing um approach to life and and it played to my favor when i got into music and i got into business okay yeah and what i find really interesting here is like all the stuff that we learned in our youth and that we learned in playing punk bands and skateboarding all of that there's so much value to bring into the business world i want to hit on a couple things that you brought up sure you know, one of the things that, um, so Patrick, who uh, produces the podcast and I were talking about yesterday is how like older generations should never tell younger generations what punk is, mm. you know, like this is what punk is because it's like, well, that's what punk is for me as like a 45 year old man who's like, you know, had all these life experiences, but my finger's not on the pulse. I can't tell you what punk is today. So, but you said something that stands out to me when you're a kid you see that other kid with a skateboard in the 80s when skateboarding was like way before X Games or any of that stuff. That's just what you did. You just went up. If you saw a kid on, on transit or just in your community with a skateboard, you just went up to him and talked to him because you knew there's one of my people. Yep. Yeah. There, you, you immediately knew this is my common ground. Yes. And right and that's what sales is that's what relationship management is mm -hmm. that's what relationship management whether it's internally with your team that that you manage or work with or work for finding those commonalities is the key to making that a successful relationship right mm -hmm. and that's what I was able to do through you know skateboarding and punk rock when you know, only because it was blatant Aram, you know, you you saw the kid with the skateboard and you go common ground, boom, it's there. Or you were at a punk show. And even if and back in the day when we first came up through our own scenes, um, it would be a ska band playing with a hardcore band, playing with a punk rock band, playing with um, a new wave band. 
And even when you went to a show, not everybody there was of similar mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you looked over and I saw a kid with a Descendant shirt, commonality. Mm-hmm. I knew I could walk up to that guy, I knew or gal, uh, and I knew that we'd have something to talk about and we'd connect on something. Right. And that's one of the big things I learned getting into business as I developed was you got to size somebody up in in the first minute for them to know in that in that first interaction whether they're going to like you or not. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you could see something that you can connect on, um, you know, you, you should let that be apparent. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I couldn't agree more. So so much of what. I apply in the business world, um, you know, as a coach and a, and a business leader, um, people talk to me a lot, a lot about like, oh, that comes from your background as a therapist. And like, yeah, of course, like some of the specific skill sets that I apply to uh, working with people, but understanding people where I really learned that was through skateboarding and punk rock, 100% interacting with people, all sorts of different people. Sometimes you're only with a group of people for a couple hours until you're off to the next city. Uh, sometimes you get to know people and maintain friendships at a distance for for decades, mm-hmm. uh, and it gives you a real great sense of like how to meet and connect with people and maintain relationships over a period of time. It is the greatest space that I've ever learned something from. But let's go back into your into your um, the history of your of your youth a little bit because there's there's an interesting thing I want to touch on. So there's not a right or wrong about how people find punk or skateboarding or any of that. Some of the story that we hear from people is like, Hey, I came from kind of a broken home or, you know, a single parent, or, you know, I was really lonely and isolated as I was a kid. And I was searching for community and I was searching for connection. And that's how I found skateboarding. And that's how I found punk rock. sounds like you had a different experience. And again, there's all sorts of experiences. I'm not saying one's right or wrong. What I'm interested in is you had this really rich, multi-generational, big, big family. Sounds like people got along well. So what drew you into skateboarding and punk? Uh, it's a good question. And I think I was sort of drawn to punk skateboarding for the same reasons. And I'll tell you why, even though I came from a big loving family, which by the way, was the great launch pad and and support I needed to be able to go out and confidently approach these new things. I was also an only child for 11 years. So my little brother was born when I was 11 and he and I really didn't even start connecting till he was a teenager. He was my little brother and I loved him, but I was still an only child. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, even though I had all these cousins of the same age, we weren't into the same things. So when I got into skateboarding or I got into music, I searched out the scene for the same reasons, for a sense of brotherhood, a sense of community. Yeah. The other thing was I grew up a good kid. You know, I, I, I really didn't get in trouble. I was straight edge from an early age. Um, you know, I knew it just was my route. It was my path. So trying to find other people of like mind was something that, that drew me, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't so much some, uh, joining a, a group to feel like part of something. It was... I knew that part of something was there. It was more about finding commonality with, with other people to share it with. Yeah, I, I love that. All right, so you get into the punk and hardcore scene. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you're playing in bands. Uh, you mentioned you went on to teching and tour managing. When did you realize that you might want to have some kind of like real deal career within the music world in general? 
So yeah, I kind of fell into it. I playing in bands, playing in the New York scene in the '90s was great. I mean, it's, there was so much good music happening. There were so many great bands that were sort of getting their chance, right? Civ, Sick of It All, Orange Nine Millimeter, Shift, all these guys uh, into another. Everybody was signing to major labels. Um, we were all all the friends, all the comrades were kind of coming along for the ride right we were all we were all living it with them at the at that point and at that point i was uh i came up through a pretty non-traditional way into this industry uh which was the performance side of it mm-hmm. you know most executives in our industry went to music school went to berkeley went to crane school of music at, in university of potsdam or any other various music school. And they all came up with education degrees. Mm. They all went to school to become professors or in performance. And eventually, through performing, found their way through this industry. And most of it came up. The point of entry is retail. When when you get into the retail business and you get a, and you get in with a larger company, you make connections. And if you're good at making connections, then like cha-ching, you're allowed to walk through that next threshold. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how how that happened. But um, I, I'll tell you the way it happened with me. I started touring. Um, I was lucky uh, enough that um, shift uh, got a tour with Orange Nine Millimeter and Local H. And um, I think a mutual friend of ours, you know, Mark Holcomb from uh, from Under, Undertow. And yeah, yeah. I know you played in a band with, with Pettibone and some of those guys. Mm-hmm. So Holcomb uh, was a guitar player for Shift at the time. They had just signed to Columbia. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to go on tour and they were like, we can't pay you. And I said, great. When do we leave? <laughs> so uh, we, we did this coast to coast tour. Um, I had some guitar tech chops. I had worked on my own guitars and really it was just about lugging gear and, you know, lugging gear and tuning some guitars. So it was a great tour. We had a lot of fun. The Orange Nine guys were friends and really good. And uh, I came home and, and so I was working for my dad. My dad owned a home remodeling company. And from the time I was young, I worked on the weekends. I worked summers for him. I, I had that, that skill in my hands. And um, I came home from that tour. And my dad was like, all right, you got it out of your system. I need you. And two weeks later, I get a phone call from Ray Capo, who goes, hey, James, I heard you were on tour with Shift. And I said, yeah. And he goes, we just got a tour with no doubt. And we need shelter needs a tech slash tour manager. Uh, so I said, great. When do we leave? He goes, can't pay you much. Great. When do we leave? Um, needless to say, my dad was, was not happy, but it gave me the opportunity now to be exposed at a greater level of touring because, I mean, we were now doing universities and large venues and i learned uh the lessons of managing a tour a little bit better i learned the lessons of managing a stage and being on time schedules better because when you're on a tour like that everything just has to move um and that was great uh 
needless to say, did a number of tours after that, did Warp Tour, did a number of, of a lot of fun things. And I, I got the opportunity, this will be kind of the last tour story I tell. Uh, I, kind of, I got the opportunity from a band called Sam I Am. Mm-hmm. who was also another you know great bay area a little more of a punk band a little more of an indie rock band and we got a creed tour so we actually toured with creed for a month and and it was a blast i'll tell you it was really a lot of fun and again sort of that higher level not necessarily a punk hardcore tour mm-hmm. the one pivotal turning point for me was I was looking around at all the... Because at that point, I was convinced I'm going to tour my entire life, right? Mm. I'm going to be a tour manager. I'm going to be big time. I'm going to tour a kiss. I'm going to whatever. Um, and I, I started to look around at all the career touring guys. Old, lonely, right? Never got to see their kids grow up. And at that point, I was in my mid-20s after, at, that, at that point. Mm. And I was, again, so those family values kicked in and I went, oh, you know, I, I think I'll never really be able to play in a band again, which I love and I miss. And I want a family. So I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have to see what I can do to segue. I, I knew I loved the music business. I knew I wanted an opportunity to sort of develop that, but I didn't know how or where. And at that point, my girlfriend at the time said, uh, hey, you know, there's there's this company opening a store here, and it's a giant music store, and it's called Guitar Center. Now, this is 1998 in New Jersey, um, and I went, oh, God, I don't know if I want to be in retail, but I will tell you that I had amazing experiences with the company. When we used to go through L.A., which I'm sure you've done, you go to the big store on Sunset Boulevard. And I did make friends with the artist relations guys there. When I'd come through on tour, I'd call them. They'd always have my order ready. And it turned out that one of the artist relations guys moved to the East Coast to work for them. And he said, James, your experience in tour managing and just managing people, I'm telling you, this is going to be good for you. So I did. And I jumped in. I applied and I got the job. And I went from entry-level guitar sales guy on opening day to store manager in the chain um, in about a year and a half, oh, wow. which was which was a pretty fast turnaround time at that point. And then I kind of became known as the fixer, right? I, I was I was the wolf at that point. I uh, I would get the calls and go, hey, you know, at this store, the culture in the store is really you know, bad. The the morale in the store is really bad. They've got really bad theft problems or the merchandising in the store is bad. So they would send me around. They would go, okay, great. You know, starting Monday, I really want you to go run this store and, and go get it going. Through that, it developed and, and I got the call. I got the call from Casio, of all places, keyboard company. And um, they said, we need some really strong retail chops to run our sales team. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right, I could, I could do that. I've been running sales teams, and I, I'd like something on the national level. I'm not a piano player, mm-hmm. but it's about knowing the business mm-hmm. and being able to have passion for what you do, which then led to me becoming the vice president of sales for um, Samson, Hartkey, and Zoom, Zoom handheld recorders and pedals. 
Uh, which then led to Fender knocking on my door and saying, hey, we got this division in Connecticut called KMC Music, and um, we know you, we've known you. I did, the guy who had called was the president of the company at the time and said, um, how'd you like to come up and run this division for Fender? And that lasted about three years before uh, we Fender decided to sell the company to Jam. And that's where we were talking earlier. Jam USA is actually the the world's largest distributor of musical instruments. We have 15 divisions just under the Jam umbrella. And um, ultimately, uh, now we're owned by an 18 billion pound Irish holding company, Woo! which is pretty nice because we, we can go out and we, we're acquiring companies and we're, we're building infrastructure and stuff. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a degree. I'll tell you what, going to Wharton Business School wouldn't have gotten me the knowledge that I acquired um, if it weren't for going through the acquisitions and mergers processes of getting the company sold and working with Wall Street to, to sell the company. And it, it, was, it was a great, great um, experience. Man, that is awesome. Okay, so I've got to, I'm going to start getting a little deeper here in a sec, but I got to ask you some punk related questions for a guy who grew yeah. up in the New York scene. Absolutely. Okay. Best time you saw Quicksand? Best time I saw Quicksand was actually in New Jersey at the pipeline in Newark, opening up for seven seconds. Quicksand had just had um, the seven inch out, and the club, man, couldn't hold more than a hundred people, and they were just so on fire. I mean, they were just so great. And you know, the funny thing is, we have an audio bootleg that that one of my buddies made from the back of the room, and I have it on CD, and I really want to digitize it. I don't have a computer with a CD drive on it. So it's sitting in my drawer and eventually I will. And, you know, I'll send it to you because it was really good. You know, the, the, the beauty of, I mean, we all kind of, maybe there are a lot of non-punk and I'm sure there are there, a bunch of business people listening to this podcast. But just as a side note, Walter is just a genius mm -hmm. and he's and he's five years ahead of everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm blessed to be able to call him a friend. But even at that point when I didn't know him, um, his influence on, on so many of us, we would go see whatever band he was in and was playing just to see how he was doing it because it, it was going to be the new norm. It was going to be the way everybody would start playing or yeah. So that was it. Uh, I mean, iconic, iconic dude. Um, and also just a good community member. Like, I mean, I just know him to say hello. And, uh, I sent him demos of the change record uh, years ago so and good, said, Hey, so oh, good, you. by the way, I, Thanks, have to, I, love uh, I sent him just rough tracks of it and said, Hey, can you send, can you give me some feedback? And he sent me like notes per song on it that I applied, like just for no reason. He's just a good guy. Good person. All right. So that was question That's number one. That's his craft. Yeah. That's his craft, right? Totally. I mean, when you're into what you do, you share it. Yeah. All right. So, question number two. So, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you two good questions and then kind of a sad question, but it's an important question. Um, okay. So, question number two. You're a guy from the '90s. Mm -hmm. Grew up in New York. You're also probably there as a transition to the 2000s. Indecision or most precious blood? Most precious blood. Woo. Okay. Okay. All right. Third question. 
It's a sad question, but it's an important one. Uh, do you remember where you were when you found out that rabies had passed? Um, I don't remember exactly where I was, but yeah, my whole body just kind of went Oof, when you said it, because I, I, I remember the feeling that I had mm-hmm. when I heard and, uh, yeah, he, he was just such a gracious person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more so when I, when I heard he died and even when I think about it, when you, when you bring it up, um, I think of I almost have sort of flashbacks to every amazing interaction I ever had with the guy mm-hmm. um, when he was working the door at the wetlands or, you know, just at the at the pyramid club or any of the other many clubs where he was um, just an insanely gracious person. Um, unfortunately, his body just couldn't hold out from years of damage to it. Uh, and the, and the crazy part was he was probably living his healthiest life at that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's just a, a horrible thing. And, and, you know, something about rabies, he's buried in the same cemetery as my grandfather because oh, it's wow. a military cemetery. You know, he, he was a Navy man. Yeah. So, um, so I make sure when I go see my grandfather, which is way out by like Wading River, it's Calverton, Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, I make sure that I, I stop by and see rabies. Heck yeah. Um, I was in a computer lab because this is before having uh, like a PC at home was super common. I was in a computer lab at my college and uh, I read it on like, I don't know, like victory chat or something. And I'll never forget the moment, man. And just like the utter shock. It was the first time that someone, although I had never met rapies, it was the first time that someone that I felt like as if I knew in the punk and hardcore scene had passed away. And of course, such an incredible, um, iconic figure for all of us. So any business people who are listening to us, the reason we're, I'm checking in on this, James grew up in a, in New York hardcore scene and New York hardcore scene has been so pivotal for the kind of music that both he and I are part of. And rabies was like the center of that. And so it's important for me to acknowledge uh, this, uh, this really important figure in our world as we go forward. So thanks James for humoring me on that. All right, man. So you hit a space that I'm really fascinated with. We're punks. We grow up in the punk scenes. We're skateboarders, you know, like we're kind of like these anti-system people. Mm-hmm. But then we find out, oh, wait, like the business world, I have this totally applicable skill to it. And I have this applicable skill because I grew up in the punk scene and I know how to build relationships. and I knew how to do these things. Did you ever face kind of like a midnight of your soul about it? Was there ever a moment where you're like, oh, I'm now moving into this kind of corporate business world. I'm actually becoming a leader, a boss. And I grew up listening to music that would on the surface seem like was anti that. Did you ever have any push or pull about that internally? No, no, because um, where, where the punk ethos was very anti, anti-establishment, anti um uh, I, I think the hardcore mentality is a little more about building. Mm-hmm. It's about building the network. It's about building uh, the business. And, and I got to tell you, being the son of an immigrant, um, I saw my father who came to this country with zero. I mean, some people say with $5 in their pocket. You know, my father was a kid when he came here and had nothing. And they lived in a in an apartment, and I saw how hard my father worked, and I had a really big admiration for accomplishment. 
whether it was accomplishing something good in school or in sports or with the band or in business, I, I grew up from a young age appreciating accomplishment and and growing and 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 dare I say it success. So I I never really had any qualms about getting into the business world. Um, because I also knew that as I got into, whether it was retail or the manufacturing side of the business, I could still do good. Mm -hmm. I could still influence and help. And I'll tell you, that was a lot of why I was as successful at retail as I was, because at that point I could make sure every band that came through that area would know that they've got a home in my store to come in, get what they need. They'd get taken care of. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it's how I made a ton of friends through the years was uh, they would reach out going, hey, I hear you're the guy. You're the connector. You can help me with. You can, can connect me with. Um, and, and that's one of the other things I really pride myself on is, is being a connector. And, and people go, look, I, I need, but I feel bad asking. I go, don't. That's what I'm here for. Mm. I've learned, I felt that like in this universe one of my roles is to connect this guy with a great idea to that guy with the know-how and not want any part of it. You know, just, just to know that I did something good as a, as a networker gives me the satisfaction. Yeah. And man, I love everything you said. And it was a really cool perspective when you said like that kind of the way you'd view almost like punk being more anti-establishment and hardcore being more building. And, um, one of the reasons I've, I've always really been drawn predominantly to hardcore and very specifically to like, kind of like more positive kind of hardcore is the idea of building. Um, so like from my own experience, I grew up more in like a chaotic, um, uh, I had more of a chaotic family experience growing up. So I was one of the people who's drawn to punk and hardcore who was looking for like family for community. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was always bands like youth of today. Um, or Gorilla Biscuits or bands of that vein that, that yeah, sure. gave me the thing where I could say, oh, like we can be punk and be good people. And, you know, like we can be punk and like live clean and do these things. There's something about that really worked for me about part of stepping out of chaos also had to do with like building things. And that's how I ended up, you know, going into addiction therapy and doing all that kind of work. And when I got to the business world, one of the things that I thought I did have that kind of midnight of the soul where I was like, ah, you know, like, am I kind of selling out? Um, I, am I doing something that I, I'm going to regret? And what was cool is when I got into the business world, I was like, oh, no, like, it's as simple as just don't do bad business. Like, don't be involved in bad companies. Don't do bad deals. And it's, there's tons of good people out here doing tons of good stuff. Just do that. And then influence mm -hmm. and help change the areas that are that are negative. And I was totally delighted to realize it's like, oh, my God, everything I learned on tour, everything I learned about putting out records, these are all instantly applicable to this world in a way that I have an edge on the next person who I'm competing against. Like, I actually know how to do this stuff because I folded a thousand seven inch covers like I know how to do that. <laughs> and it was such a shock. But I'd learned so much from punk and hardcore that was my absolute guide to being an ethical and successful business person. It sounds like you and I had very similar experiences in that way. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so let's hit very specifically about relationship building because I know this is something you're, you're super passionate about. So 
I think like any lay person could be like, oh, you know, having business relationships is important. What's deeper than that though? Like why is this important? Share your philosophy on like business relationships and building those strong relationships. What really matters there? You go through any clinical sales technique, right? And there's, there's, you know, suggestive selling and yeah. And for me, it's all about collaborative selling. No, no, nothing else mattered to me. And, and when you come up through the sales world, you'll have a lot of sales managers wanting you to sell like them. Mm. And then you'll have a lot of sales managers that understand and respect the individuality of the salesperson and then figure out those are to me those are the best sales managers um and it's the one that i strove to be because i was able to take the individual personalities and styles of each salesperson and then develop them mm-hmm. use all the universal approaches and trainings to help these salespeople be the best and mentor them to be the best at what they do um so for me my style has always been collaborative if i knew yeah, RM, we sat across from each other and you were a buyer. We would have that commonality. We would figure out a connection. We would connect on that. We would feel very comfortable with each other. And then we would be sure that, to me, a business transaction has to be mutually beneficial. And it doesn't mean that everyone, one or the other side or both sides, are going to be equally um, successful. But throughout the length of the relationship, it's important that everybody looks back and says, these are important relationships for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and collaborative partnership is is not just about long-term or, or not just about short-term, but it's about long-term. And the most important part of that is business is unpredictable and business always has ups and downs. It's never all candy canes and rainbows you are going to have issues. You are going to have to have hard conversations with the person across from you. And this is not just sales. This is just business relationships. Mm -hmm. And when you have a great relationship with the person across from you and you've got a a sort of a a situation that's going to be unpleasant and it's going to be uncomfortable, it's so much easier to come to agreement and get past that obstacle when you've got that foundation of strong relationship. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a good feeling that throughout my career, I've made a difference in my relationship with people because I've, I certainly haven't jumped around. I mean, I'm with my company for eight years. Before that, the last company, I was there for five years. Before that was five years. So I don't just jump around, but I do feel very confident that the relationships that I made three companies ago, whenever I move to a new company, even relationships where I know they are not apt to do new business or entertain new uh, relationships, they come with. And And I've had many buyers in the past go, James, whatever company you're at, you can count on the fact that we are going to do business. Because doing business with people you like isn't always possible. Mm. When, you, when you have necessities, right? And, and I'm not going to name names, but when, when you're some of the largest manufacturers in the musical instrument space, mm. and they are necessity lines for legitimacy of your business, mm. 
it just tends to be the fact that those companies are fairly arrogant mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes not very pleasant to work with because of that arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with good, strong A brands, but I've never come from a position of arrogance. And I think that goes a long way. Mm, okay. Um, around relationship building, if you're thinking about coming up in like punk and hardcore and skateboarding, what are the core aspects of relationship building that you learned there that, that you clearly ported into the business world? I, I could think back to a time when I lived in an area that had no scene, mm-hmm. right? So for people not in the music biz, it's not just about being in a band or playing a show at a local bar and hoping people show up. Mm-hmm. It's about recognizing the talents of everybody around you, including the person sitting across the table or whether or not you're on the same team and you're working together. When you could see multiple bands within a geographic area, but they're, they're, the bands aren't being pulled together to even just play in front of each other, right? To start a scene and then start to expand it to be a place that that has a reputation for if you're into this type of music, this is where you want to go. You want to go to Syracuse in the mid '90s. You you know you want to go to Buffalo in the mid '90s. These are these are uh, and and at that point I was actually in Orange County, New York. My parents had moved us just a little bit upstate. People who live way upstate actually take offense to the fact that Orange County, New York, calls itself upstate. Um, but the ability to see talent in other people, uh, whether it's um, people who are just into the scene or people who are photographers who could benefit all the bands in the scene or people who have the talent in business to throw shows or rent out a legion hall to have a show or um, or just other bands that you see are so good, but they're type B personalities and they're not getting the exposure they need. My life has been an aggregate of of recognizing these talents or these values that other people bring and trying to pull them together, trying to create something we can all be a part of. Mm. That's what I apply to the business world. Uh, mm. Same thing. I, I look for the the value of the person sitting next to me or across from me. And I figure out a way to put them together for a successful business relationship. Um, and then that's, again, when, when mentoring and, um, and hiring and putting together a team to tackle a project, you're looking at everybody's value and you're, you're fitting it in, but then you're also figuring out how to amplify it. Mm-hmm. How do you take the value that this person has or the skill set that this person has and make it better? Because when your team's successful, you're successful. When your team fails, that's your failure. Mm, yeah. Um, so if we're thinking about client relationships, what, what role does relationship building have in the difference between being a service provider versus being an advisor? Like someone who can like advise someone about their business versus just sell them something? Uh, well, I kind of, in my world, I do a little bit of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the client advisory 
or the suggestive or the sharing of experience that they may uh, be able to apply in their own business, whether or not it directly affects a business transaction at the moment or not, it has great value to them, I I hope. And and usually it does. Uh, So you end up becoming a confidant. You end up becoming a coach. Um, To me, I I never looked at coaching as a top-down thing. Mm. I always looked at coaching as a peer thing, Mm. Um, which is why many times um, when we go visit a customer or we go visit, you know, a, a, a store or a buyer or an owner, or I spend time with one of my sales guys, I don't ask him to come into my office. Mm-hmm. I go, hey, what are you doing today? Let's grab some lunch. Let, come on, I'll take you out. We'll, we'll grab something to eat. Um, and that's when I can go, look, we are not boss to you know, salesperson or relationship manager or key account manager or whatever, you know, kitschy term we're using for salespeople these days. But um, (laughs) at that point, the wall is broken down and Mm -hmm. it's where do you feel like you've got question or Mm -hmm. um, yes, what situation completely frustrated you? And maybe I can give you some perspective on a situation that I had that was exactly the same, where I can give you perspective on how to get past it, how to develop further. habits are bad um good habits bad habits just when you get into habits you get into ruts Mm -hmm. so keeping it fresh for everyone and and giving everybody a different perspective because i think when when you just go straight to selling Mm -hmm. when you go straight to selling you don't necessarily have the relationship that's needed to get past price Mm -hmm. Uh, in my world right when it when it comes down to hey you sell this, somebody else sells a similar this, uh, I can make more money on theirs or theirs is cheaper, right? Those conversations don't exist when you're having a conversation with someone that you've got great respect for. And that not only comes from relationship building, but it comes from imparting knowledge. And as you were saying, you know, coaching them or sharing things with them that help them in other aspects of their lives or their business. I love what you just said there uh, around relationships really like diminishing the focus on price. So it sounds like uh, part of what you're saying is like, you know, when we're looking at um, from a competitive landscape, people are like, well, we could go with this company, this company, this company. sounds like what you're saying is like, well, really like competitive advantage is based on who you are and the kinds of relationships you engender with others. When you do that, price becomes less of a focus and more of just kind of like a sidebar conversation. Right. It becomes a detail in, in the conversation rather than the conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So, and I, I just see such value in that. If we we're going to focus on what are some of your key suggestions that you could give professionals from any industry around relationship building, but also specifically in the sales industry around relationship building, what are some of the key things that you'd boil it down to? Like the fine points of saying, this is what you need to focus on. So number one is is stepping up and taking control. Mm-hmm. Take control of your approach. Be prepared. Take control of the situation. Lead the conversation. It's not about trickery. When, when people hear things like control the sale or control the conversation or control the relationship, um, the clinical sort of definition of control is is 
has this this mar. It has this this negative connotation to it. Mm-hmm. And and when coaching my team, I, I tend to revolve the conversation about controlling that relationship, leading it to the end result, not just for you, but for them. The conversation that you're having and the relationship that you're managing is mutually beneficial and making it easy for the person on the other side to understand the proposition at that point and and leading that conversation to the end result and and this is just sales 101 making it easy for the other end of that relationship to just say yes so that you can move forward is the key to sales and i know this is very sales oriented but that's what i do um yeah so when my team is is given a number of tools by our merchandising team right and and they've got beautiful pdfs that they can share and a value proposition and a presentation and a price list and they just email it off and say hey great here you go you know tell me how many you want right um i find that the more successful members on my team that put it all into their own words um that put suggest hey based on your business here's what your inventory looks like here's where your successes are with this particular line so here is my suggested boom 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 of what you need to do to get the most out of this proposition mm-hmm. then it's just like yes the guy on the other end goes he's not just managing me or he's not just trying to sell to me he's putting together he he's looking at this as if he works for my company and is setting me up for the greatest success. That's, that's to me, the key to success in, in that area. Okay. So you said number one, were there other ones that you wanted to add in or was that just like, kind of like the big one that kind of covered it all? Uh, you know, it's, it's always about PMA. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's right, always you gotta, about PMA. You got to explain that for the audience. They're not going to know that. <laughs> so, uh, so PMA is a uh, is an amazing um, philosophy, which is positive mental attitude. Um, Ram and myself, uh, I, I don't think either of us were reading Napoleon Hill when we were kids, <laughs> no. but through through a band, the Bad Brains, um, we learned this philosophy through their lyrics and through their attitude. And I, I tell you, it. It never left me. It never escaped me. And I found that as I believe positively, as I approach something positively, the reaction back more often than not, it's never perfect, but more often than not is going to be positive. And um, I find that too many people who feel like they're in a rut, not having success, is they get so wrapped up in their negativity that that just, you know, they become like Eeyore, you know, if anybody's a <laughs> Winnie the Pooh fan. But it's like nobody wants to sit next to the guy that looks miserable or approaches things or talks like they're miserable. You want to be around energy. You want someone, you know, you want someone inspiring you. Um, can I blow your mind? Yeah, go for it. Well, this might not blow your mind, but just since we're talking about it. Uh- Ah, uh, you're wearing your bad brain shirt. There you go. <laughs> total, total. Well, not total surprise, but it's cool that came up. Um, so for the audience listening here, like just so you understand, bad brains is like, I don't even know how to, where to put this. It's like 
of the bands like this was the band like this is the, the band that really for for anyone who's part of the hardcore scene is like oh my gosh like the bad brains and they were the first uh, african-american hardcore band uh, i don't think punk band but definitely hardcore band and they definitely changed our world forever and there's lots of stuff that i'll i'll talk about uh, in the future about bad brains but the idea of pma really launched a lot of stuff in the punk and hardcore scene that moved, well, I guess for hardcore, it moved us away from some of the nihilistic thinking that would be attached to punk and started something that was new that goes back to the beginning of our conversation, which is about building and being positive and being in that space. All right, so you gave us some really cool uh, salient points. I'm going to ask you a a few tougher questions here. Um, If you are looking at uh, sales um, teams in general, Mm What are they missing about relationship building? What's like a clear thing that you're like again and again, you're like, yeah, you're not, you're not getting that. Uh, what's missing is the understanding that it is relationship management. Mm. Most sales teams, most sales based businesses get too wrapped up in the sales. So again, it's always about transaction by transaction, what I'm pitching you right now by what I'm pitching you tomorrow or next week. And it becomes a whole bunch of onesies, right? It becomes a whole bunch of one-time hits that never get strung together. Mm -hmm. But the most successful salespeople, sales management mentors that I've had in my lifetime have all whether or not they knew it at the time, expressed how much the relationship means and how, the, uh, how much the approach to a physical connection with that person sitting across from you means. Okay. Uh, next one. So what didn't you learn in punk and hardcore that was a tough lesson to learn in the business world that you only learned in the business world that you didn't learn from punk and hardcore as it pertains to like building relationships. I think the scene, I I didn't learn how important it was to have individuality in how I approached something. And and it's funny because most people would look at punk rock people uh, or or hardcore people and music people as very much a unique individual, right? You, you can you can you know you can put studs in your nose or you can <laughs> color your hair, and that's being an individual. But really, it's not being an individual. It's being a part of this bigger thing where everybody else does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so being an individual, whether it be realizing business is not. a a dirty word or capitalism is not a dirty word or um, some sort of organized conformity where, you know, it's amazing how, how again, punk rock scene, hardcore scene, they look at conform, you know, don't conform, but like they're conforming just by thinking the same thing and being there. So the individuality that was needed to form your own, um, your own style was something that I, I think happened in bits of hardcore, um, whether it be the youth crew who dressed more like jocks than like punk and hardcore people. And, and that was their individuality and sort of led to you know a different part of the scene. I, I think that I, I getting out of punk hardcore into business, I had to learn how to develop being me instead of being part of 
one of the various genres in our in our scene? Oh, that was a really good answer. And you know, for anyone who's, who's listening, and for anyone for punk and hardcore is listening as well. You know, as I've gotten older, I've realized how um, rulesy hardcore is. Very rules based. You know, you got to like the right bands, dress the right way. And I didn't think that when I was a kid, because there was safety in following a different kind of herd. And one of the hardest things as you got older and you kind of go down paths that maybe are different than your peers in the punk and hardcore scene, that's when you really learn what it means to be an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really, uh, really cool thing. And that's not a, a crack at hardcore or punk at all, because I still, both James and I love, love hardcore and punk. Um, it's, you know, as, you, as you're part of something, you also see, see some of the fractures in it. All right, man, you ready to talk some, some punk and hardcore very specifically as we're heading into the wrap up? Yeah, sure. Okay. I'm going to ask you hard questions. So we'll start with an easy one. Top five hardcore bands. Got a star Black Flag. Okay. Patrick just raised his arms up in victory. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Um, Bad Brains. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, Slapshot. Definitely. Oh, Slapshot. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, being straight edge, I know your edge as well, but being straight edge in and living in an area where... It was party central, jock parties, stoner parties, whatever. Um, I was definitely a bit aggro about being hardcore, about being straight edge. Right. So knowing that there were bands like um, Judge or, or Slapshot that, that were like, yeah, it's not only okay to be straight edge and not do this, but like you could be angry about it was, yeah, was yeah, yeah. important to me. So I would say yeah. Judge, Slapshot, and then meant Grill Biscuits. Definitely. Okay. So this is going to lead me to a very difficult question. The distance. Is that a Gorilla Biscuit song or is that a Moondog song? Uh, I've had this conversation with Walter before. Um, it, to me, it's a Gorilla Biscuit song because the first, the first time I saw it performed was by Gorilla Biscuits. Um, right. Was, you know, Purcell was in the band and Tom Capone was in the band. Sammy was playing drums. Um, and you know, I got to tell you, I think they executed it better than because unfortunately, the Moon Dog recording is just so bad; it doesn't have the mm. same energy. Um, and and sorry, I, and you sorry know, Wally. Yeah, no. Well, he was part of both of them, right? <laughs> yeah, but know, actually, he was playing bass for Gorilla Biscuits at the time when they were doing that too. Yeah. Were you at that In Effect show? No, I just, I saw it on the, that was a Super Bowl of hardcore. Um, no, mm. but I, I saw that tape and I, I must have watched that tape a thousand times, especially thousand times, yeah. distance because at that point it was uh, you know that was like that should have been what the next GB record should have sounded like. Right. Okay. So I'm gonna concur with you. I think it's a GB song. I was very disappointed they didn't record it when they did that that kind of reunion seven inch. Yeah. Uh, but also, I respect that they didn't. But man, I, you know, that's a GB song. Okay, really tough question now. Well, maybe it's not tough. Maybe you don't want to answer it, though. Second Civ LP, yay or nay? Sorry, Charlie. Yeah, it's a nay. <laughs> it's a nay. I mean, I, I, I'll still listen to it, and I love it, but... I like it. I, I don't love it as much as 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 the first and, and the seven inch. They actually did some demos for that. Um, they did some demos for that second record at my friend Gibby at his recording studio in Hoboken that I used to work at, and so I heard some of it beforehand, and um, 
Uh, yeah, man. Nah. Sorry. All all respects to Siv. We love you guys. You're to one all, of, to one all, of the best, but all of my boys. All of you guys. Yeah. All, all, all your boys. Okay. Okay. I'll ask you some, some less hard ones now. Sure. Break down the walls or we're not in this alone. None of the above. Disengage seven inch. Wow. <laughs> okay. That was a good, good outsider one. All right. Uh, final question. I know where you're going to come in on this, or I'm pretty sure I know you're going to come in on this. Which had more influence on, on hardcore, not punk, on hardcore? California hardcore or New York hardcore? I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because actually I was talking to Patrick earlier. I, I, I know, so growing up in the New York hardcore scene, it certainly had a great influence on me later, but not initially. And I know you're you're like a Boston hardcore SSD influenced, you know, uh, um, you know, Tang Records type, you know, influence type guy. And being a West Coaster, I, I get that. Being an East Coaster, the first hardcore I was ever exposed to, and the first punk I was ever exposed to, was all West Coast stuff. And I think that bands like Black Flag blast or even punk bands like angry samoans and um you know dead kennedys which i'm not a big fan of but i i there was a lot of seminal x germs there was a lot of stuff coming out of the west coast that i think um influenced what was happening on the East Coast a bit as well, at least when it came to it getting aggressive. I mean, we all know New York was happening, the Ramones were happening, the Misfits were happening, but it was still kind of poppy. And I think that, um, I think it all fed, and I think all roads come from California with me because it was the first stuff I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's really the answer here. Um, it's just my perception, but you, you've probably that's, seen it over the years that each scene pushed each other to be better. Totally. Right. And totally. Boston was really aggressive forced mm-hmm. New York to be more aggressive force DC. It was so um, competitive. It forced all that stuff to get really aggressive and heavy. And I think it left the West coast in, in its dust, um, you know, in sort of that second wave of hardcore. Mm, all right. Great answer, man. Okay. Um, so as we're wrapping up, uh, anything you want to add in from any perspective, it could be uh, you know, about relationship building and business. It could be something from the music industry. It could be something about punk hardcore, whatever you want, anything you want to add in. Yeah, sure. Well, business is changing at a rapid pace. And I think if I had a nickel for every time I heard that saying, you know, maybe, maybe I'd <laughs> be able to retire someday um but you know as the business world changes and as my industry specifically the musical instruments industry is changing it's with every year it accelerates even faster um where you would see changes in my particular industry um you know in 10-year cycles and then it started to be five-year cycles and then in the past five years, the way that retailers have to go to market, the way that e-tail or e-com has become more and more of a p- 
heart of what we do or how we market or how we develop product and the way that retailers expect the vendors and the manufacturers to drive the business more than they ever have before instead of a cooperative way. Um, companies that are still trying to figure out how to evolve are going to get left behind really fast. Yeah. The further you can stay, it's almost like if you've ever surfed, when, when, you, when you jump on a wave, you always want to be just ahead of the break. Mm-hmm. You can't be too far ahead of the break because then you'll, you'll die in the water. And if you're behind the break, you're going to get smashed by it. And I think, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned is we're doing this podcast in sort of the the, the age of quarantine um, with, with, you know, coronavirus. And I saw this drastically accelerate when, when the lockdowns happened. Uh, there were retailers and manufacturers who were prepared and thinking forward enough ahead that our teams could work from home and be productive. Our customers could work remotely and be productive uh, and reach their audience, right? Whether it's an end user or for us, it's our customers. Just being prepared to operate when thrown the biggest curveball the world has ever been thrown. Um, And then you get to see the people who could act quick and make something out of what they had. Or the ones who gave up and just said, you know what, I, I'm just going to sit back until things get back to normal. Unfortunately, we're not going to see normal. It's uh, I hate to use the word new normal or the term new normal, but um, everybody has had a, a massive slap across the face with what just went down. And approaching business is is going to continue to rapidly change and it may be where business climates change two or three times a year rather than every year so uh, i think staying ahead of that wave is going to be extremely important it sounds obvious but it's just something that I, i find really um really important to say out loud the other thing is take the short odds don't you know don't feel like um don't feel like Taking a safe bet is an important thing right now. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to get outside your comfort zone because the benefit is a lot bigger. You know, for the non gamblers out there, when you, when you bet on the short odds, you tend to get paid back in in spades. You tend to get paid back higher. So um, I, I would say oh, you look at the short odds, and if you can figure out how to master it, you're you're going to be successful. Heck yeah. Excellent, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was a totally awesome conversation. And for anyone out there, listen, you know, again, it sounds like business one-on-one, you got to have good relationships, but no, like you really do need to have good relationships and every single successful, like truly successful business person that I, that I uh, meet. And when I say success, sure, there's a financial component of that, but I mean success, like they've made a difference. They're recognized as someone who's a great partner, who people really believe in, who people connect with, who are viewed almost like a community member within the business world. Those people are relationship-based people. Everyone's going to have a different style, but you can't just go from some textbook version of building relationships. You got to bring who you are in, but also notice what your audience needs. When you're able to do that, you're going to make a difference. And for me, that's what it's all about. So James, thanks so much again. And Dave... 
Drop the beat. Hey, thanks again to James for coming in and having that great conversation with us. You know, client relationships, it's both an art and a science. And what I mean by that is there are tons of specific things that I do over and over and over again. So there's a structure that I apply to how I build my relationships. And I'm always looking to learn how I can get better on that. So I learned a ton from James today. The art side of it is just that gut feeling when you read someone, when you use your empathy, when you kind of get a sense for the environment. You know, you can't have one without the other. So if you're someone who's just based on skill, cool. You've got all the theory, you've read all the books, you've watched all the videos, you've listened to all the podcasts. That doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. Or you're someone who just goes from your gut and you're always just kind of getting a sense for people. But that doesn't mean you have the skills. It's that beautiful merging of the two things, both the art and the science of it. That's how you build great relationships. Nothing is one size fits all. Everything has to do with the context. Everything has to do with when you sit down across from that person, whether it's you know one-to-one, you actually see each other, or if it's on Zoom or it's on the phone. It's about being in that moment and applying what you've learned and then what your gut tells you. So thanks again so much to James, and we'll catch you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.